Have you experienced the uncompromising joy of the message of Jesus? Have you allowed this unbending, unbreaking truth to fill and consume you and to guide you? Because what this truth means, not just for others, but for us, is that while we were enemies to Christ, while we stood in opposition to him, while we were hostile towards him, he moved towards us that we could have life in him. Well, as I said, we are jumping back in uh, to our study of the book of Acts. I'm going to invite Janice Duckett uh, to come on up. She's going to read for us this morning. And as she's walking up, you guys can stand with us. uh, And you can turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. We're falling on the heels of persecution and all sorts of fun stuff. So, Good morning. Acts 4. Now those who were scattered... Excuse me, Acts 8. (laughs) I knew I'd mess something up, sorry. Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying... This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid Pardon me. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could have attained the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity." And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You may be seated. With great authority. Uh, well, we, we come to yet another passage that's full of um, applicable moments for us here and now. Uh, we, we see this movement towards Samaria. We see a character by the name of Simon step in. We see him asking to, to try and buy the gifts of the Spirit. There's a lot that unfurls here. But what it all centers on and what we're going to see is this uncompromising joy that is being offered for all people. Uh, I remember reading uh, In the Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. And it's a book that just recounts her life, her story. She experienced the Holocaust. She, she lost her sister and her father in the midst of it as she was trying to rescue Jewish people within the Netherlands. And it just accounts her experience in some of the, the worst moments of her life. And yet, throughout it all, she had this uncompromising joy that was found in the Lord. And there's one story she tells that after all of this had, had taken place, that she just spent the rest of her life sharing the good news, proclaiming the joy that's available in the Lord for all people, speaking to forgiveness, she who had experienced so much just horrible moments in her life. And she found that one of the places that was hungriest to hear this good news was Germany. And one time at the end of one of her talks where she had just spoken around what God had done and, the, and the, the beautiful way that he takes brokenness and forgiveness and weaves it all together, as was typical, she would hang out afterwards and people would come and find her. And there was a man who approached her. And, and as he approached her, she recognized his voice. He had been one of the guards where she had been held at one of the concentration camps. So she didn't even have to look. She knew who was approaching her in this moment. And, and before she could even respond, as he approached her, he came up with his, his hand outstretched and his face beaming. And his words, as she records, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. All this with outstretched hand. And as Corey Ten Boom recounts this moment, she who had just proclaimed forgiveness and the freedom and the joy that is found within that was now facing one of the very people who had committed great acts of harm against her with his hand outstretched, proclaiming the goodness of the message of Jesus. And as she saw his hand, she just felt her hand locked next to her side. And what I love is her transparency. This is a woman who's a spiritual giant in so many different ways, but she clearly says, the only thoughts that went through my head were vengeful, they were angry, they were not pure, they were not good, and I could not get my hand to move. See, it's amazing how quickly our joy can be erased by the presence of another. Haven't we all experienced this at some point? Someone shows up into a room and your whole countenance changes because you're like, oh. They're here. Right. You walk into the store and that person makes eye contact with you. You're like, well, I'm not shopping today. Right. It sneaks up on us. 
but it's there. And what we see available to us is this uncompromising joy that's not shifting nor bending nor breaking, and yet we find ourselves allowing our joy to be shaped all the time by those things that are fleeting, those things that we cannot control. My joy is based on my job. My joy is based on uh, the person who I love in my life. My joy is based on you fill in that blank however you want. But what we discover in this passage is an uncompromising joy that cannot bend nor break and is available to each and every one of us in this room and it is available to all. So as we look into this, I just want to begin by praying for us. God would just speak to us in this time. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we come to your word and as we come to the proclamation of you, Jesus, the Messiah, the hope of of all humanity. God, I pray that you would help us to find ourselves in this passage. God, that we wouldn't just look to the heroes, but that we'd look to the villains as well and recognize that there's spaces in our heart that we need to turn over to you. That there's some things that we need to redirect and point towards you, that you are God who is limitless, and yet we try to limit you all the time and limit who you can reach. Would we never stand in your way? So, Lord, would you speak to us in this time through your word, through your spirit. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we pick up in chapter 8, verse 4. As Janice just read for us. And we're following on the heels of a great persecution. Stephen has just been martyred, the first to give his life for the cause of Christ. And we see Saul, this one who is standing there, approving of this execution, goes house to house, ravaging it like a wild animal, trying to pursue anyone who's following in the way of Jesus, take them down, arrest them, beat them. This is what's happening. Now, Jesus had said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, But they probably thought that was going to be a more subtle, natural progression. But here it's being forced as they're being squeezed out of Jerusalem as this persecution is taking place. And so where we pick up is the scattering is starting to happen. So verse 4 tells us, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is important. Just take note of this as you're, you're looking at this. Persecution's coming. People are being beaten. People are being thrown in prison. And what's the priority of those who are being scattered? They're not fleeing for safety. They're not hiding. No, they continue to proclaim the word of hope that they have found in Jesus. That's the the priority of the early church. In the face of opposition, they continue to trust in Jesus and continue to proclaim him. And so those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He proclaimed to them the Messiah. Now, if you were a devout Jew living in the time of Jesus and you were hearing someone recount this story, what you would get hung up on immediately is that they went into where? Went into Samaria. Nothing good happens in Samaria, according to a devout Jew. You had to keep your distance. There's there's nothing for you in that place. The animosity between the two sides was so great. Now, when we hear of Samaria, or when we hear of a Samaritan, where does our mind go? Those who've grown up in the church, what do we think of? Say it out loud. The good Samaritan, right? 
We think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we think of this hero of the story who acted when nobody else would. But the reason that was so controversial was because no one would see a Samaritan as capable of any good act. And so we're seeing this play out again, that the the gospel message is moving down, and it's making its way into Samaria. The Jews and the Samaritans were, were enemies, The Jews looked so far down on the Samaritans that they they considered them and they called them half-breeds or less than. That was the language that was common between them. And what we see is that hate can grow quick between people. But it it grows best over time and generations. What I mean by that is when it's passed down from one generation to the other generation. Right, where it's, it's taught in a, in a long frame. And it's why my, my son knows that when the Packers lost last week, there was great rejoicing in our household. And I know I saw a few of you wearing Packer jerseys here, which I was confused by. I was like, that's offensive, personally. But the Jews would have taught their kids, you don't mess with the Samaritans, you don't pay any attention to them, they are less than us. And this had begun centuries earlier. In 722 BC, when the northern kingdom was was taken over by the Assyrians, the Assyrians took out all the leadership of Israel, except some. They left some in the land, and then they brought in their own people. And what would happen is that those people would come together as a people, and the southern kingdom couldn't stand that they had commingled and existed with these conquerors that had come in. And this would begin this rift that would slowly start to form over time, so much so that even after the northern kingdom was defeated and they would come back from exile to rebuild the temple, the Samaritan people came and said, we'll help you. And they're like, we don't want anything to do with you. You stay on your side, we'll stay on our side. That's how deep this hatred had run. And for the Samaritans, what they were looking for, what they were hoping for was someone called the Tahib. The prophet who would come in the line of Moses that would set all things right would be this great teacher. And they thought this because they only held to the first five books of the Pentateuch, the the, the Torah. and, And they didn't see the rest of the Hebrew scripture as scripture. And so there's some of these blatant differences that were there between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jewish people worshipped in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. The Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim, where they saw that as the true place of worship, and they saw themselves as the true Israelites. Now notice the language between the two. Well, we're the true way. Well, we're the right way. Well, we're the right way. And so it just built this animosity that would lead to violence over time. So this is what we step into as the movement of God steps into this place. I mean, if you think about it, even in Jesus' day, when the the, the religious leaders were looking for something offensive to say about Jesus, looking for a name to call him, what did they say? In John chapter 8, verse 48, they said, are we not right in saying that you, and they're speaking to Jesus, that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Notice the order there. It's not like you're a demon and a Samaritan. They're like, no, you're a Samaritan and a demon. This is a word that you would not say aloud because it was offensive. And so here we see Philip heading down into Samaria to this group of outsiders. 
And he would come and they were looking for this Tahib, this, this prophet, and what he would offer them was something so, so much greater. He would offer them the Messiah, the true anointed one that had come for all. And so in verse 6, we see the people are just hungry for this. And the crowds, it says, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. What do we see happening here? The crowds were so fixated on Philip and his message that they were with one accord, it says. This phrase that we see throughout that was used to describe the early church, that they came together in prayer with one accord, with one heart, with one mind. These people were locked in on the message of Philip. They're watching all these signs and wonders that he is doing, and they are paying attention to him like a middle schooler pays attention to their video games, right? Just locked in, in the zone, not wavering, not shifting. We're all there. Unclean spirits being cast out, paralyzed and lame people walking because the power of God was moving. Now, who, who was God using in this moment? We've got to remember who we're talking about here. It's Philip. Philip, who is one of the seven, not one of the 12 apostles, not one of the, the, the OGs, the original ones. No, he's one of the seven who is brought in. Why? Because the, the Hellenist widows were being overlooked, and so they needed someone to pay attention to them. So he was one of the men that was chosen to, to look over uh, the, these Hellenist widows. And what were the requirements that were, that were put before them for these seven men? That they were full of wisdom, they were full of the Holy Spirit, and that they were men of good repute. So that's who we're dealing with. This is Philip, who's, who's teaching and now proclaiming the goodness of God and to the Samarias, to the Samaritans. He'd walked into enemy territory... And now he's proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And what I love is that you catch it there in verse 8. The response of the people in this moment is that there was much joy in that city. Much joy. A remarkable amount of joy. So much joy that you, you couldn't help but be caught up in the moment of what God was doing. This is the kind of joy that my family experienced on Monday when we woke up to snow. Right? We're still newbies. As someone reminded me last service, like not everyone thinks snow is joyous, okay? He had some strong words, too. He, he did not like snow. We do. We don't know any better, right? We're, we're still new, and it was only like four inches of it. It was great. But we were so excited. My kids were like up and like dressed, ready to go out in the snow as much as they could, and then we rode in that snow until it was mud. Like we're like, we're going to get every last ounce of this. But there's something about this joy that they experienced, the proclamation of Jesus, that captures my attention. Because when's the, the last time, when's the last time you really sat and experienced the joy of knowing Jesus? When you've just thought through what he's done on your behalf, what he's afforded you, the life that you receive in him, when have you just allowed that to just to sink deep down and well up this joy that cannot be taken from anyone? He has given that to you. It's uncompromising, unbreakable, unbending. It's there. What have you just sat there and experienced that joy? Because I think far too often we forget, we get caught up in the distractions all around us. We forget that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's our ability to continue moving forward even in the midst of chaos. 
And joy is the result of knowing him. And that joy is one that we shouldn't seek to hoard or keep to ourselves because it doesn't run out that joy. It's shareable. It spills over. It's what we can bring with us anytime we walk into a room is the joy of experiencing the Lord. And what do we see happening here in this moment? These half-breed Samaritans. These less thans These unreachable, untouchable, I want nothing to do with them. Those who are affiliated with the wrong party, the wrong temple, they associated with Samaritan's Life Matters. There's no hope for this group. Right? That was the view. There's nothing here. We shouldn't even try. We'll stick to ourselves and we'll condemn them. This is what's unfolding. And let me tell you that the animosity, it wasn't lightly earned. There was some real intention on the part of, of the Samaritans. So, so don't let them off the hook. No, they were so, uh, they were so thoughtful. And so uh, thoughtful in the way that they looked to provoke the Israelite people. That in the first century, a group of Samaritans broke into the temple. This, this it broke into the temple, and what did they bring with them? They brought a bunch of human bones, and they started spreading them out everywhere. Now, why would they do that? To desecrate the temple, to render the temple unclean. And they thought by doing this, they could take down the system. It's these Samaritans that now Philip and the apostles are soon to follow are going to show up proclaiming the message of Jesus too. And there's great joy in this place. Because these people, those people, whoever you deem as those people, because we all have those people that we like to keep over there because we can't stand to be around, we've all got that list. And that can be a red color, that can be a blue color, we can ascribe all sorts of party affiliations to that, but those people, what we see in this moment, are worthy of the joy of the Lord. And when it's proclaimed to them, they receive it and they become brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a miracle in this moment what's transpiring here. And I think we've got to let that sink in because we want to blow by that, but we've got to let that take root because the early church was modeling something there and then for us here and now. Because they were united under the banner of Jesus. Not party, not race, not their prejudice. No, they came under the banner of their king. And we know the enemy is, is trying to influence the world around us. We do have a great enemy that is trying to just create chaos and destroy and to rip us apart. And he will influence and use those who bear the image of God. but the reach of God can never be limited. And so what I found myself asking as I read through this passage is why do I so often limit him then? Why do I so often think, well, but I don't think you could get there. See, the priority of the early church, their laser focus, the, the thing that they kept, the main thing was to proclaim 
Christ to proclaim the Messiah to all who would listen because their lives had been transformed by him and that uncompromising joy that's found in him, they just spilled over wherever they found themselves. Even if that was in Samaria. I received an email this week um, from someone in our church and I love, uh, I love hearing what God is speaking to you guys. Every once in a while, you guys let me in on what God's teaching you and what, what you're hearing from him, and I love it. It encourages me to no end, and I was just so captured by this because I'm studying through this, and the, the, the prayer that I got from this person of just, man, I've been really wrestling with all the chaos I see in the world around us, but here's my continual prayer, and they said this. I just continue to pray that the events of today and tomorrow will draw people to the Father through Jesus. And I pray for the salvation regardless. I pray for their salvation regardless of who they are or their belief system. And I was struck. I'm reading through this passage. I'm watching the early church expand. And I'm getting this prayer from, from, from a brother in Christ who's saying, I'm just trying to keep my eyes on the main thing. And I'm so, I see the swirl all around me. But I want my prayers to go that even those that share different beliefs than me, even those that are contrary to me, that God would do a work in their life and that his name would be made great. See, this is what's before us. And what we see is that this joy comes and it spreads through the city, but we're also going to see as it dips in on this man named Simon that it's easy to compromise our joy, that it's easy to get lost. Verse 9. We pick back up and it says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. I can only think of David Copperfield. In a second, it's like magic. <laughs> but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So we get this introduction to this man named Simon who's down in Samaria. He gets this following because he can do these tricks. It looks like he's got great power. No one can explain what he's doing. And back then, sleight of hand would get, would get you a lot of influence because people would be afraid that there's some kind of witchcraft or sorcery behind this. And here, the people are saying, man, this guy, he's the power of the one who is great. Like, he's, he's God's emissary. But what we also see with Simon is that he was saying himself that he was someone great. And there's a lesson in here for us because this still happens today. People try and fool us and trick us. But there's a simple kind of test that I just would encourage you to always run by people. Whenever anyone is telling you that they are kind of the singular conduit or they are the, the hinge on which everything swings, when they make it more about the messenger than, than the message of, in person of Jesus, one word for you, run. Get out of there quick. If they're making it about themselves, get out of there quick. If they're not pointing you to Jesus and they're just talking around how special they are and how God is using them, get out of there quick. And Simon's doing this. He's got people paying attention to them. They're locked in on him. He, he had a movement happening. And so Simon was used to all of this attention. He was used to being kind of the big man on campus as he walked through Samaria. Like people knew his name and he had clout. But suddenly now this, this Philip shows up. 
And he's proclaiming a new message about the Messiah, Jesus, that is to come. And he's doing some pretty miraculous things, some pretty powerful things. And, and Simon's looking at him like, well, how, how can I get in on that? In verse 12, we pick back up and it says, but when they believed Philip, this is the Samaritans, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. There's this movement that just starts to happen. In verse 13, even Simon himself believed. But pay attention to how Luke describes Simon, okay? Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, so he believed he was baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, it's, it's subtle, but just pay attention to that language because what is Simon paying attention to? He's amazed at the miracles. He's amazed at the signs. And, and instead of looking at the, the one that those signs pointed to, he continued just to stay with the signs. The good news had captivated people over the tricks of Simon, and he wasn't quite sure what to do with himself, and yet he thought he'd join in. And again, the way that Luke uses this language here, there's a lot of conversation around this passage where people go, did he really believe? It says he believes, so did he really trust in Jesus? But the way in which Luke describes him, I'm of the opinion that Simon was just kind of caught up in the moment. This is a bit of emotionalism. And he thought, well, I think I can get in on what's happening and kind of be a part of this for my own sake so I can save my own name and my own influence. And he goes along with it. And we'll, we'll look at more of that. But as we read this, what stands out to me too is, is that with Simon, there's a little bit of him in all of us. That we can be so close to the work of God. We can see God moving around us, but just keep enough distance that he doesn't quite transform our heart. We can just keep a safe enough distance that we can remain the same without having to change or step into the call that he's, he's putting in front of us. And what we're going to see is that Simon wanted to get something out of this. He was looking for a new trick. But Jesus wasn't about offering a new trick. Jesus is like, I come that you can have a new heart and a new life in me. And so we see this movement of God. It's sweeping through Samaria. And now, now we're told uh, some backup is going to come down. So verse 14, continuing on. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. I love there that it says he, for he, because often we refer to the Spirit and some people talk about it as an it. No, it's personal being. It's God, Spirit, he had not fallen on them yet. But they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they, the apostles, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a couple questions that start to get framed up here. And the, the first one is this. Why did Peter and John come down? Uh, why did they have to come down? We're going to look at that. The second question, too, that I think often gets kind of hit around here is, why did the Samaritans uh, not receive the Holy Spirit right away? Why kind of this tiered system? Like, what, what's going on there? What's the delay? Uh, what's the purpose of that? So let's look at that first question really quick. Why did Peter and John come down? Well, some people look at that and they think it was kind of this like checking up on little brother. Like the apostles are like, there seems to be this weird movement happening in Samaria where no good thing should be happening. So let's just go see if they're doing it right, right? That's not the intent. They're coming down because what we're seeing is they knew this was coming. God, Jesus had said, you're going to go out. Samaria is going to be one of the areas that gets hit. 
And so they're coming down, and what Peter and John are doing is they're validating the work of what God is doing so that they can go back to Jerusalem and be like, we saw it with our own eyes. It's happening. God is moving, and this is a good thing. Now, what I love about this is just this subtle moment of it's Peter and, and John. Now, if, if, if you remember at all, uh, John has a really interesting interaction with Samaria. Uh, the last time he was there, he was with Jesus, and the Samaritans didn't want them to come in. And, and so John and, his bro- and James had some ideas of what they should do. They said to, to Jesus, when the Samaritans refused uh, to let them in, the, he said, Lord, do, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right? Like, I'm just trying to figure out that conversation. Like, they're not letting us in. Oh, well, Lord, would you like us to call fire down on them? Just destroy them all? We can do it. We're ready. We've been waiting. We've been waiting a long time for this moment, right? He was, like, so ready to destroy them. Again, you see the disparity here between Jews and Samaritans. There is a deep hatred. So, like, the thought of, like, let's just, let's just get this over. We'll annihilate them now. Wasn't, wasn't that odd of a thought? And Jesus backs him off, right? Because Jesus is like, just, just you wait, John. Just you wait. And now what's John doing? He's not calling down fire. No, he's calling down the spirit upon new brothers and sisters in Christ. He's seeing it with his own eyes. Ah, this is the uncompromising joy that's available to all, not just for me, but for everyone who will believe in Jesus. And he gets to be part when he and Peter lay hands on the people and the spirit of God comes rushing in upon them. He's now witness to this. And I, and I love that because it's just this another little mark and you see what God's forming in the character of his people and what he's, he's forming within us, that this is who we are to be. And so they come down and they're validating the work of what God is doing so that they can be uh, witnesses to it and, and living testimonies to what God is doing. So that's, that's why they come down. But, but why this delay in the spirit? What's, what's happening there? Now, it's important as we read through this section that we read through it with kind of the right lens in place. This isn't prescriptive, meaning this isn't how it always has to happen. This is descriptive. Luke is telling us this is what took place. This is how this happened. Because we, we look at the, the book of Acts, and the, actually the, the Spirit falls in different ways. Sometimes there's a water baptism, and everyone's baptized, and then the Spirit comes. Sometimes uh, the Spirit comes upon people, and then there's a water baptism. There, there's no one which way. So what do we do with that? What do we take from this? And what's, what's the point of what's happening here? Well, we, we start by remembering that the Spirit is a, is a seal and a sign for all who believe. That when you confess that Jesus is Lord, the Spirit, God himself, now resides in you, empowering you and equipping you. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so we're we're reminded here, before we go any further, that the Spirit is a sign, a guarantee, a a seal. But again, what's what's the delay? Why why is the Spirit working in different ways? Well, in one way, it's reminding us that we cannot confine God uh, to say, well, if we pull this trigger, then it's always going to work this way. No, even the, the, the apostles are going to come, they're going to lay their hands on. That's, that's not uh, prescriptive either. That's, that's descriptive because sometimes the Spirit just comes without anyone laying any hands anywhere. But I think one of the most helpful distinctions that I have found was Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Lord, 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, there it is, um, he talked around the spirit and the way in which he interacts with, within the life of a believer. And I found this really helpful because the way he describes it is that sometimes you can walk outside into a mist, okay? Bit of a fog, bit of a mist. And as you're walking around, uh, over time, as you spend time outside, suddenly you start to realize that you're a little damp. And if you spend enough time out there, you actually start to discover you're, you're, you're wet, now, other times, you can walk out the front door, and the clouds and the skies just open upon you, and you are drenched immediately. So it is with the Spirit. There are times where the Spirit is just quietly working within us, and, and we may not even recognize fully what He's doing. We hear His whisperings. We see His movement and within our lives. It's not overwhelming. It's not this, oh my goodness, this crazy experience, and yet we suddenly find ourselves further along the road going, Lord, you've, you've done a work in me. You're filling me and shaping me and refining me over time. And at other moments, we'll have an experience where it feels as though the Spirit has just rushed in upon us, empowering us in a moment where we're able to speak to something we never thought we'd be able to speak to or stand in a moment where we thought we would never have the courage to do so. This is the beauty of the Spirit of God interacting with us that He shows up in just the ways we need Him to. And so in this moment, there's this delay well, again, I think it plays back into why Peter and John were sent in the first place. So that when they came down, they could be witness to the Spirit of God coming among the Samaritans so that when they went back to Jerusalem, they could say, you see, he's, he's truly working in them. They didn't just hear a message. No, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are sealed by the Spirit. I've seen it with my own eyes. You can, you can trust this, that God is on the move. And so this delay is helping to, to further entrench that, no, the Samaritans aren't these half-breeds, these others. No, they're a part of us, and we need to get rid of that language because when you come under the banner of the king, it's only brothers and sisters in Christ. So the apostles lay hands on the Samaritans, and the Spirit comes, and they receive the Spirit. Now, remember, we just talked around Simon, this magician who's kind of coming along for the ride. He's paying attention to Philip and all the signs and wonders that he's doing. And he's watching all of this. He's taking it all in. And verse 18 says, Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So again, Simon, what's, what's he trying to do? He's trying to get something out of this. Simon's been displaced. These people come down preaching this message of Jesus and where he once had power, he now feels the, the lack of it, that people are paying attention to these guys. So how can I be more like these guys so they'll pay attention to me again? Again, he's paying attention to the signs, not to the, to the one that the signs are pointing to. And he wants to learn a new trick. And so he's like, I've got, I've got money. Well, show me. And how does Peter respond? But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. May your silver perish with you. Now we read that and we're like, that's, that's strong. But what Peter is really saying here, what this could really be translated as, the heat that he is putting behind this, he's, is Peter's looking at him when he's offered money for the spirit of God and Peter reacts in this moment, he says, may you and your silver both go to hell. That, that's how this could be translated. I don't say that lightly. I'm not looking for a reaction. That's how this comes out. 
That's how he feels. In the, how, how dare you? How dare you cheapen the grace of God? This is not something to be bartered with, something to be earned, something that you can pay for. No, this is a gift given by a good giver who's come on your behalf to offer you life. And the only thing that you can do with this gift is you can choose whether or not to receive it. So how dare you, Simon? How dare you? Verse 21, you you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Now, this seems like an interesting phrase. That word matter seems like we can just pass over, but it matters, okay? That was a cute play on words. Nothing? (laughs) Trying really hard up here, okay? (laughs) You have neither part nor lot in this matter. That word matter in the Greek is actually the word logos, which means word or message. And so when we look in the book of Acts, often that word logos is attached to the good news, the message of the good news, the proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. And what Peter is saying here is you have neither part nor lot in the good news for your heart is not right before God. You've compromised yourself before God. You're you're chasing after the signs instead of the one that they're pointing to. You're, You're looking for power instead of the one through whom all power comes from. So you're you're missing the good news is what he's telling him. But Peter doesn't leave him there. He gives him a chance. Verse 22, he says, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So Peter looks at him, he says, repent, change your directions. You're still aimed towards yourself and your own glory, your own means to an end. Look heavenward to what Jesus has done for you. Aim towards God. He says, because the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity are before you. Now, the gall of bitterness is not a phrase that we throw around or or, or use, but it was an idiom back then that really spoke to someone who had grown resentful or envious of another. And what Peter's calling out in this moment, he's like, listen, Simon, I see it. You're bitter and you're jealous. You're bitter that Philip came proclaiming the good news and that people are now paying attention to him. You've lost your influence. You don't know where you stand anymore. You're envious of of what we're doing and you're trying to get at it in the wrong way. We're inviting you in. We want you to be a part. This power that we have comes only through Jesus and you can be a part of this too, but you're chasing after it in the wrong way and you're looking at it in in the wrong lens. You're only looking at how it can add to who you are and and make you look greater, but that's not what this is about at all. It was Theodore Roosevelt who said, comparison is the thief of joy. And all Simon saw was his tricks no longer mattered because they were doing greater ones. So he just thought, if I could just just get what they had, then, then I could be back on top. And this compromised Simon. He couldn't experience the joy that was set before him because he was looking for the wrong thing to fill in that blank. And therefore, he was still in the bond of iniquity. He was still captive to his own sin. We even see it in his response to Peter in verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's answer to Peter in this moment is so telling because he doesn't doesn't aim his words towards Jesus 
He actually never mentions the name of Jesus once. He's just like, can you take care of this for me? Can you figure this out for me? I don't want anything of what you said to be true. But he's never looking to the source in Christ that was always standing before him. We see a fear of consequences. We see a compromised joy. We see kind of conditional joy, but, but not an acknowledgement of his need of a Savior. And we don't know what becomes of Simon. This is, this is all we have. There's some, some legends and some things that have grown up around Simon and who he became and, and, and practices that he went on to do, but, but those aren't anything that hold a lot of weight to them. So all we're left is with this, hoping that at some point he recognized his need of Jesus and was able to step into life with him because that was the offer being put before him. But what we learn from Simon is how easy it is to misplace our hope. To misplace our hope and power that we can hope to attain for ourselves. As opposed to placing our hope in the one who has all power to save. And then we come to verse 25, which really kind of bookends where we started in verse 4. It started with this movement of God into Samaria. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. What I love is this wasn't just some kind of reconnaissance mission for the apostles. They didn't just get in and out. No, they took their time on the way back. Because as they walked through Samaria, they said there's more people that need to know the hope of Jesus. And so they proclaimed his name in every village that they walked through on their way back to Jerusalem. See, this is the heart of those who have experienced the uncompromising joy that's found in Jesus. That there's a recognition that no one can take that from you and that it's overflowing in him and that there's enough for everyone. So as we come to the end of this, the question for for me, for us, as we come to the end of this passage, have you experienced the uncompromising joy of the message of Jesus? Have you you experienced that? Have you allowed this unbending, unbreaking truth to fill and consume you and to guide you? Because what this truth means, not just for others, but for us, is that while we were enemies to Christ, while we stood in opposition to him, while we were hostile towards him, he moved towards us that we could have life in him. This is why Paul tells us in Colossians, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That when we root ourselves in this truth, when we recognize that Jesus has paid our debt and he has paid it in full, that the weight of sin and shame that we so often carry around with us wondering, what do I do with this? How do I fix this? And then the Lord speaks. (laughs) See, this is what I love. It's just live, you guys. We're in this together and things are going to happen. So so have you experienced this truth? Have you grabbed hold of it? Have you spent time with it? Have you reminded yourself of it again? 
Or have you started to, to compromise your joy and start to shift and place that in other places that it doesn't belong? Are you still looking to your good king who promises you joy in him, steadfastness and forgiveness? See, when we experience this uncompromising joy, I truly believe that we have no option. It just it overtakes, it, it fills us, it spills out of us that we just begin to share it. That we walk into a room and that room begins to shift, not because of us, but because of what God is doing within us when we are available to him. But I know far too well for my own self how easy it is for me to limit what God can do. I tend to put, just as we all tend to put parameters around people or limitations or labels so that we can just leave them over there and we don't have to deal with them. And yet God has the power to reach all people. And the uncompromising joy of the Lord is for all. So as Corey Ten Boom sat there, their hand to her side, unable to reach up to shake this man's hand. All sorts of conversations were going through her head. And again, I loved her honesty. All the anger, resentment, the horror, the vengeful thoughts that were just flying through her mind. And so she thought just for a moment, just to quiet herself and to pray in this interaction. She said, Lord Jesus, you forgive men. Help me to forgive Right? She knew, I can't do this on my own. I'm going to need you here to back me up. Help me to forgive him. And as she describes what happens next, it wasn't this simple thing. No, she kind of had to force her hand up until it finally met his. But what she, she describes is what we see when the good news of uncompromising joy shapes and shifts our very being. Because as she took his hand into her hand, she said, I felt what seemed like electricity just kind of charged through my hand into this other person. And what it did more than anything was awaken my heart to once again love the stranger, love my enemy, and love the person before me. This is a life that it's consumed by the joy of the Lord that's been transformed by the proclamation that we have a Messiah who has come and in whom we can find our rest and our hope and our joy. She described later that what she discovered in this moment for herself, she said, for so long I thought it was, it was our forgiveness, it was our goodness, it was our manufactured joy on which the world hinged. But none of that will do. No, the world hinges on his forgiveness, his goodness, his joy. It's in him that we live and move and find our being. So that joy that we receive in him when we step into life with him, it's not ours to hold on to and to hoard, but it's ours to live in, to enjoy, and to share with all who will listen. Not just who we want to have listen, but even them. And those people. This joy is found in him and in him alone. 
and this uncompromising joy. It's what moves us. It's what gives us hope even when we find ourselves in desperate moments. For it comes not from ourselves, but from our very creator who is in pursuit of us. And what we see in these pages is a reminder that this joy is not for some, but this joy is available to all who will believe. So may we be joyful conduits of his grace with everyone we encounter. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, we are... We're grateful for who you are. Jesus, for the joy that you afford us in life and you. That our sin, that our shame, that we can never carry on our own, you carry for us in full. But God, even within that, we are prone to wander. We are prone to take this uncompromising joy and to compromise it by chasing lesser things. So, Father, I pray that right now, if that's where we find ourselves, if anyone here is is finding themselves chasing something different, finding their joy in something other than you or, or seeking it, God, would you just do your work? Would you realign our hearts towards you? For those who are feeling the weight of just disappointment, of a, a joy unrealized, because of disappointment of relationships or or life, loss of job, loss of income, whatever that may be, Father. Would you speak to them now? That we would once again place our hope in you. That you would be the source source of our joy. That we would recognize you as the source of our very being. So Jesus, may we be a people that proclaim the truth of who you are because we live it and we experience it deep in our bones. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.